Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the roots of Russian despotism and hegemony, but not just in Ukraine and not just under Vladimir Putin. No, we're going to go way back to a time before communism, before the Romanovs, even before Ivan the Terrible. That's because, according to my guest today, famed Russian historian Orlando Figus, the roots of Russian political dysfunction go all the way back to the Mongol invasions of the 13th century, and to the Orthodox Christian religious identity that started taking root among the region's Slav population even before that. In his new book, The Story of Russia, Figus argues that Russia's vast geography, its brutal Mongol inheritance, and its apocalyptic sense of religious mission have all contributed to create a culture of despotism, whether in the form of medieval vassal states, czarist feudalism, totalitarian communism, or now, under Putin, corrupt strongman autocracy. So I'm going to start off with a big idea and a big question. In your book, you talk about the sacralization of the czar's authority as a legacy of Byzantium. And until I read your book, I really had no understanding of how much Orthodox theology had sort of mixed with, call it Slav ethnic populism, to create this kind of theocratic and, and maybe even apocalyptic vision of the Russian Empire as the third Rome. Can you explain what that means? Because you use that phrase several times in the book, the third Rome. Wow. Well, that is a big question. Yeah, no, I, mean, I just uh, went right. It, I wasn't going to talk about the, the Wagner group or anything. <laughs> just going straight to, you know, a thousand years ago. Straight to the, the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Which is, as you say, this concept of the third Rome, which is at the heart of a a, a Russian sense of, of mission in the world, of um, Russia as a sort of messianic uh, land, a little bit like Israel, I guess. But in the medieval theology that was adopted by um, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, who was the first to be crowned Tsar and to reclaim after all those years of Mongol occupation the Byzantine legacy symbolically through his coronation. Shortly afterwards, the patriarch who had crowned him Tsar came up with this ideology about Moscow's the Third Rome, that after the fall of Constantinople in 1453... Moscow was the last true seat of Christianity, of orthodoxy, and there would be no other. So this was the idea that the West, and indeed the uh, later the modernized Greek church, by joining the fold of the papacy in terms of uh, many forms of right and so on, the West was a fallen mm. state. It was fallen from this state of grace that, that Russia still retained by virtue of its orthodox religion. Therefore, the true salvation of humanity uh, lay in Holy Rus, in, in Holy Russia. 
And this idea that uh, Russia was the this providential land chosen to save humanity is at the very heart of both the Russian Empire and indeed communism itself. It's no coincidence that you know the Third International could be seen as, if you like, the continuation of this tradition of the Third Rome. That Moscow is the seat of salvation, as it was for many communists in the world communist movement of the twentieth century. It's deeply connected to the sacralization of power because it's the Tsar as the direct manifestation of God on earth, as Ivan the Terrible saw himself, who has this mission not just to uh, save humanity, but also to prepare his people, the Orthodox, for the final judgment, for the last judgment in this apocalyptic sense that you yourself have, have raised in your question. So the, the Tsar is there as potentially a tormentor of his people in order to make them worthy of, of that messianic role. So this is a very weird concoction of ideologies coming together, which is still in many ways relevant uh, today insofar as I think Putin, in this tradition, claims for Russia a mission that goes beyond its strict territorial boundaries. Just as in the 19th century, probably the last person to do it as ruler of Russia, Nicholas I claimed that Russia had this holy mission to liberate the orthodox of the Ottoman Empire. And indeed, he saw his mission going as far as to liberate the holy lands themselves, because that was really the true capital of Holy Rule. Jerusalem. Speaking of Ivan the Terrible, there's one striking passage here. This is in the 16th century. This is after, I believe it was Ivan, conquered Kazan. I'm going to quote here because you talk about how, to mark the victory, a large horizontal icon called the Blessed Host of the Heavenly Tsar was painted facing the Tsar's throne in the Dormition Cathedral. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, known as the Church Militant. I'm going to read here. It shows the mounted figure of Ivan following the archangel Michael in a procession of Russian troops from the hell-like burning of Kazan to Moscow, depicted like Jerusalem, where they are received by the Madonna and child. The iconography borrows from the book of Revelation in which Michael defeats Satan before the apocalypse. Ivan appears as a new King David and the Russians as God's chosen people. This kind of image sounds like something in the Western idiom out of the age of Richard the Lionheart. And this is in the 16th century. I mean, this is at a time when the West is, they've got the printing press and you've got the dawn of the Elizabethan age. And mm -hmm. people are talking about things like parliaments and theories of taxation and private property. There's something strangely anachronistic about this. I mean, this is around the time when Western philosophers and politicians were trying to sort of separate the abstract state away from the people who ran it. Mm -hmm. Your contention in the book is that separation has never really been clearly defined in Russian history. Yes, you're absolutely right. Going back to the church militant icon, I mean, there you have it. Everything we discussed in your previous question is there contained in one icon. And I think that perhaps the weirdness of it from our point of view is that, you know, it wasn't a, an uprising in Kazan that, that Ivan was suppressing. It was a whole kingdom of, of the Mongol Khanate that had swept over Russia in the 13th century and remained there in Kazan as, as an independent Khanate. That Khanate existed in some form until the 18th century, is that right? 
Yeah, there were there was there was one of the last offshoots of the of the Golden Horde, as the Mongol occupation That's of Russia incredible. was known in terms of statehood, was the Crimean Khanate, which was not really defeated until the 18th century. But from the point of view of central Russia, pushing the boundaries back to the Volga and capturing Kazan was like some sort of yeah, it was seen unsurprisingly perhaps as some sort of providential deliverance. Because uh, thus ended more than two centuries of, of Mongol rule for the Russians, which had entailed periodically the ransacking of towns and burning of churches and so on. So that that sort of slightly precarious existence of, of Russia's Christian civilization on a Eurasian steppe, peopled by pagans or Muslims or in some cases uh, Jews, was part of this this sense of empire being religiously loaded, that, you know, they were carrying the Christian mission. But coming to the second part of your really interesting question, the idea of the of the state being fused with the idea of the Tsar, that, uh, yes, absolutely, is at the heart of my argument about what makes Russia, in terms of its statehood, very different from the Western tradition. Because, as you say, around the time of the Renaissance, and arguably earlier, in, in most Western states, there was a growing separation between both king and church, but also between the idea of the king's office and the idea of the king's body or portrait. They were separated. And that that didn't happen in Russia, partly because of this tradition, this Byzantine tradition where church and state is fused and represented through the holy body of the Tsar, and partly because of what I think of as the other great structural continuity in Russian history, namely patrimonialism, the idea of, of state in Russia, which comes as gasudarstva in the Russian, is completely fused with the idea of the sovereign, the gasudar, which means not just a ruler, but a sovereign or anyone who has a patrimonial property over land, which is actually the source of the concept even of power in Russia. I mean, if you take the word power in most European languages, pouvoir, potente, macht in German, it comes from the idea of autonomous action. The ability to do something is one's power, which is commensurate with the idea of individual liberties eventually. But in the in the Russian tradition, the word for power is vlast, which comes from the word volost, which is the word for a territorial entity in which you would own literally the land and its people. So this is a patrimonial concept of power, which which situates the state in the patrimony of the Tsar. In 1897, for the first time, the Russians carried out an, a national imp- or imperial census. And Nicholas II, the, the, the Tsar at the time, registered himself under occupation as owner of Russia. I mean, which wouldn't have been an alien concept in the West a thousand years previous. Precisely. When things get really interesting and bizarre is when you start to get reformers in Russia who want to try and adopt some of the, the technological elements that they saw in the West, specifically in Germany. People were coming back from Germany and say, well, you know, their agriculture is more productive and, uh, you know, even in Poland, Lithuania. But then they they meld it with these bizarre anachronisms where whole towns would be moved or essentially commandeered, including all the occupants who were essentially treated like serfs and said, well, okay, you guys are going to start making wagons. 
and commanded to do so kind of in the name of capitalism. The idea being that the yeah. only engine of progress was based on totalitarian spirit of an autocracy. Yes, I mean, the state remains the dominant and arguably within its ideology only viable economic agent. There were industrialists, even some of them from the peasantry, like the Demidovs, that emerged in the 17th century. New opportunities opened up for them, for example, in the Urals and, and the mining possibilities there. But on the whole, an, an independent entrepreneurial class had, had never really developed in Russia, largely because the towns themselves had been organized by the state for tax and military conscription. It was a closed shop, effectively. I mean, uh, you know, Jews tried to get a look in, but they were soon expelled to the Pale of Settlement. Germans wanted to get a look in, but they were also penalized, not allowed to set up. And so effectively, the state developed in Russia really in the early modern period as a as a sort of classic European military tax conscription system. But it had no ability or willingness to allow independent, autonomous wealth producers to emerge because the only way it could collect those military needs and taxes was by, yeah, as you say, the state really having a monopoly of coercive power and giving that monopoly to agents like landowners or sheriffs or governors to collect on its behalf. But it, it never released the controls to allow a, a sort of independent capitalist system to develop. So it was only state capitalism that, that allowed that to happen, really. I mean, and it's then only later, I guess, in sort of non-conformist communities, particularly in Moscow, that you see the beginnings of a more or organic sort of capitalism to emerge, if you like. But, you know, at the heart of your question, which is a fascinating one, is is this fundamental paradox about reform in Russia, that the, the only way to get things done, it turns out, in Russia is by state coercion. That was Peter's model of industrialization. He set up new industries, but they're all, they're all basically run by state serfs, by state peasants. So, of course, in his youth, he had spent time in the West and came back with all these newfangled ideas. Your description of how this spirit of Western reform, and not just under Peter the Great, but under, under others, is kind of comic. Mannequins were set up in Moscow showing how Western people were supposed to dress. Beards were shaved. It was sort of like, you know, the Western yes. family has lunch. How do they hold their fork? But at the same time, this was held in high suspicion. And you have an expression here, which I, I loved. This is <laughs> the gallomanic Petersburg dandy who became a figure of mockery as somebody who adopted Western styles. And there was always this suspicion of the West. A lot of this, the Russians come by honestly. How much of this lingering to this day is a vestige of Napoleonic times when the West, in the form of Napoleon, came and destroyed much of Russia? Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I think the sort of Slavophile reaction against the imposition of Western culture, civilization, and enforced comportment by European standards, which was really imposed on the on the aristocracy for sure in the 18th century. This Slavophile reaction was, was, I think, essentially what you might expect as a sort of nationalist backlash against any perceived artificiality or way of life that was not really 
wanted by many of the nobility in Russia that preferred to sort of hang out in the old way and carry on with patriarchal traditions and so on. There for sure was a sort of intellectual backlash too in the sort of uh, satires, and you've quoted a part of my book which talks about these late 18th century satires of the gallomaniac dandy. Uh, which felt that, you know, Russia was in, in, in trying to be at home with foreigners, the Russians were ending up being foreigners at home. That was the idea. And that by learning to speak French, no aristocrat would, you know, properly be able to converse anymore with the peasants whose only language was Russian. So there was an attempt in in reaction against the French Revolution and also Napoleon. There was an attempt to to Russify Petrine culture, by which I mean the culture centred on St. Petersburg. So to talk in Russian, um, I mean, you might remember from War and Peace, it starts much of it in French and then moves slowly through the novel into more and more um, monolithic Russian speech. But in the early phases, in this patriotic reaction against uh, Napoleon in this war against French civilization that the Russian French-speaking aristocracy suddenly found themselves. One, uh, Princess Hélène, I think it is, in her salon says, we must now all speak Russian and anyone who speaks in French will have to pay a fine. But they couldn't find any word for this fine other than forfaiture, the French <laughs> word for it. So, 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 so there you go. This was the paradox of, of Russian culture in the Napoleonic era as it tried to find itself as a sort of separate entity with its own identity, its own language, its own traditions and cultures within what you might call a broader umbrella concept of European civilization, which would include all the technologies that, going back to Peter and before, Russians, the Russian state had wanted. I mean, that was the first, that was the first approach to, to the West. It's, they realized that, you know, from defeat against the Swedes in the 17th century in particular, they realized that they needed Western military, in particular naval technologies. But uh, under Peter and then arguably under Catherine too, they never went beyond the sort of fairly superficial level of of borrowing from abroad and, and as the French would say, just aping them, imitating the Europeans without really becoming truly European. And I guess that was the great challenge for the European Russians of the 19th century, that they wanted desperately to become equal, respected members of the European community. But they felt a dreadful burden to not just to go and live in Europe as as emigres, as many of them did, but to bring Russia with them Mm. so that the Russian peasant, who was barely literate in the uh, later 19th century, could one day join Europe by virtue of the civilization and the proper assimilation of European values that they, as the intellectuals of the 19th century, might bring to their country. My grandmother on my father's side is Russian. Actually, both my grandparents. My mother made an effort to learn Russian in order to communicate with my grandmother in particular. Her English, even after coming to Canada, was never great. And my mother, who had learned German and Yiddish and Hebrew, threw up her hands at Russian because she said that Every marauding gang on horseback brought its own set of verb conjugations into the language, and she just, (laughs) she despaired of it. We talked about Napoleon in the West, but obviously the Mongols coming from the East had an earlier and, and lasting effect. How much of the Russian sense of vulnerability is based on the sheer flatness of the country? I mean, it's all the way from 
the Urals to, I guess, the Carpathian Mountains, it's a pretty flat place. It's completely different from Western Europe. There's no natural geographical boundaries. So if, if you start losing battles on the east, you're just going to keep losing more battles because there's very little to retreat to. Yeah, absolutely. So how deterministic is geography in the, the Russian mindset? Well, I mean, there have been historians with great reputations who've made, who've made it the absolute key determinant in a very deterministic way of looking at Russia. I, I wouldn't be far off them. I mean, I think one has to start with geography. The problematic nature of Russia's boundaries, the fact that it is a flat Eurasian landmass stretching from the Carpathians, I would say, okay, the Urals, they're there, but then they're in many places more like uh, hills than they are like mountains. And they're imminently passable. They can't really be a defensive point against Asiatic tribes. And the Mongol horsemen, you know, who are pretty advanced in their day had no trouble sweeping across Russia. So that left a a sense uh, from about the 16th century uh, that, as Vernadsky put it, who was probably the historian who who more than any other Russian historian emphasised the importance of the Eurasian element to Russia's development. From that point, after the Mongols were defeated in the 16th century, the sort of ideology of the state became the only way we can defend ourselves against the Asiatic hordes is to just move into the whole of Asia, to take the whole of Asia. And on the Western side, the insecurity was more problematic because there, in contrast to Asia from the 16th century, where Russians had gunpowder and the uh, Siberian tribes only had bows and arrows, so they, they could move east without too much impediment. In the West, they were up against much more powerful uh, European states, the Swedes, the Poles, the Lithuanians even, the and then the Germans and so on. And they um, they found themselves in a situation of, yeah, growing paranoia as they couldn't defend their open, um, vulnerable border in what we would call the Black Sea area. So the conquest and centralized assertion of Russian power over Ukraine and uh, conquest of the Black Sea area by Catherine the Great in the late 18th century, and then the defeat of the Crimean Khanate, and then absorption of all the Ukrainian territories into a Russian empire where Ukrainian rights, language rights are eroded. All of that was absolutely key geopolitically to the Russians in the sense that they felt otherwise that the Black Sea area, which was increasingly precarious because of the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Their their great fear was that the Black Sea area would become the new sphere of threat to Russia from the Western powers, namely Britain and France. And the fact that the Black Sea area was also the fault line, if you like, between Christian Russia and the Muslim cultures of the Caucasus and the Crimean area, the fact that that fault line ran right across the southern border of of Russia, as it was in the 18th century, opening it up to Western infiltration by the support of Shamil or other Muslim tribes resisting Russian occupation. This set up uh, that Western border of Russia with the Western world in in a way that 
It characterised, I think, many of the international instabilities of the 19th century right up to the First World War, and which obviously, you know, we're now seeing play out on our screens because Russia is fighting a war not just against Ukraine, it's really fighting a war in Ukraine against the West over precisely the same concerns it has geopolitically. So I'm just going to take a, a slight tangent and just ask you about your research skills. You're obviously fluent in Russian. Yes. Um, well, I mean, what's fluent? I mean, yes, um, in in most ways fluent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I take it you can order in a restaurant, for instance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> but the, what I'm really curious about is, I mean, so much of your book deals with things that happen before the emergence of what might be called modern Russian. Can you read documents in, in church Slavonic? Do you know the sort of predecessor tongues of Russian? Well, I mean, I could I could make my way through some of it if it was printed. But no, I've never really need to use church Slavonic texts. And very few people do. And most who do them read them in modern, modern translations and so on. The earliest Russian handwriting I've had to deal with is 18th century by um, an administrator in Orenburg, I think he was. And his Russian was this Russian was quite difficult to make out because they tended to write in a sort of bureaucraties, mm. as we might call it, which was quite floribund, both in, in calligraphy and in expression. So that was quite hard. But generally, as a historian of modern Russia, I'm dealing mostly with um, either modern bureaucratic calligraphy, which is fairly standard, or typed archival documents or as i did in my first two books i used a lot of uh, source my i started out as a historian of the russian peasantry and my first book was was based on village soviet records for the first years of the revolution and much of that was in in a sort of peasant scrawl so that that was quite hard but um these are all skills you have to pick up as a historian and um d- uh, improve as you go along a lot of the reason this book was so popular obviously is the war in ukraine to be specific, this isn't a book about the war in Ukraine, although it's written in, or at least published in the shadow of that war. And so you do dwell in some parts on the history of Ukraine. And it goes back to, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Kievian Rus, the, mm-hmm. the sort of proto-civilization of Russia, which was centered on what is now Ukraine. There's even a figure Vladimir? Yes. They have rival words for him and even rival statues. I think the Russians built theirs a a meter taller than the Ukrainian version. You talk about this Kievian Rus society, which descended, it's thought, from Vikings, who dubiously, it's imagined, were invited in to restore order to what were imagined to be these chaotic, primitive Slavs who couldn't get their house in order. But you analogize the semi-mythological I mean, it's historical, but it's mythologized, Kievian Rus to Anglo-Saxon Wessex or Merovingian Gaul, which I thought was such an interesting example. It's like real historical societies that are not really related to the modern societies, but have such a powerful role as a kernel of historical identity. As I understand, the word Ukraine descends etymologically from the words for hinterland in Russian, Borderland or edge. Ukraine means sort of, yeah, the edge. It it is a book that I started when the war had already started, if we uh, agree that the war really began in 2014, with the Russian annexation of Crimea and occupation of the Donbass. And uh, I wrote it 
with the idea of focusing on the mythologies that have structured the Russians' understanding of their own history. Because it seemed to me already that Putin was sending clear warning signals that this war was not over, that that he was going to continue to deny Ukraine's right to exist other than as a region of greater Russia, because that is what it always had been and always was until the formation of the Soviet Union in Putin's book, when it was given an artificial statehood. And that's why the symbolism of the opening of the statue of Vladimir, the Grand Prince Vladimir, equal of the apostles, as he is known in Russia, (laughs) who in 988 converted both for himself and his people to Christianity in the Crimea and thereby joined Byzantium. Now, for For Putin, as he made clear in the speech when that statue was opened in uh, November uh, 2016, by converting to Christianity, the the ruler of Kiev had begun the modern Russian state. He was the founder of the modern Russian state, in effect, for Putin. And of course, uh, that is to say that Ukraine doesn't exist as an independent entity. But but already, you know, there was a statue of the Grand Prince Vladimir in Kiev, established in 1853 when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But it was a statue which by the end of the 19th century had already become a sort of informal focus for Ukraine's independent sensibility, its sense of being different from Russia. And certainly after 1991, when the Ukrainians set about building their national identity on the idea that they were not part of Russia, uh, that statue became an important focus of the national identity. That, that yes, Kiev was the beginning, not of Russia, but it, Kiev was the beginning of Ukraine, modern Ukraine. And that became much more entrenched in the Ukrainian nationalist ideology at the time when, say, Poroshenko was in power. And he he answered to the opening of this statue in Moscow by saying, you're stealing our history. Mm. You know, he is ours. We're not part of a Russian colony. This is the beginning of our nation as a European state, because by converting to Christianity, he was opening us, the Ukrainians, to Europe, to Byzantium, to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and all the rest of the medieval structures from which the Ukrainian nationalist ideology now dates its own existence. So in other words, by setting up that conflict over a statue, I was trying to address the issues that it seemed to me, even before the war, were leading us towards war, because it seemed to me that that statue in Moscow was Putin's warning, almost a declaration of war against the Ukrainians, that you, you, you have no history, you are part of us. It seemed to me that that was important to highlight in structuring my take on a thousand years of Russian history. Because after 35 years of teaching Russian history at Cambridge and London and other universities, and 35 years of sort of writing about Russia and thinking about it, I'd sort of come to the conclusion, as I set about writing this book, that in many ways we would be better off having studied Russian historiography than we would have been by studying Russian history on its own. In other words, the reason why this war took everyone by surprise is we didn't see where the Russians were moving under Putin's ideology. They were moving to an imperial vision of their of their state and of their country in which for Putin and his 
fellow imperialists in his project, Ukraine could have no place. So this is deeply historical in, in its origins, the war, even if now it's probably more to do with just fighting the West because Putin has realized he can't conquer the whole of Ukraine. You have this, obviously fictional, but this vignette which took place in 988. And this is according to a fascinating document you referenced known as the Primary Chronicle, which is, as I understand it, was, was written by a monk. He sets forth this incredible scene where it's Vladimir who's there searching for the one true faith. And in his search for the one true faith, he summons champions of all the great religions to come make their case to his court. There then follows a succession of stereotypes. And, and of course, Vladimir, in his wisdom, chooses the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's set out in this sort of very Talmudic way with Vladimir being the sort of, I don't know, King Solomon of Southern Eurasia, and we don't have time to talk about it here, but there's these two brothers, Cyril and Methodius, ninth century missionaries sent by the Byzantine emperor to spread Christianity, who ended up being actually incredibly important historical figures because they created the religious literature, and I think created a whole alphabet for it. Indeed. Putting aside this myth, this was a legitimately historic thing. If he had said, you know what, I'm a Catholic or a Muslim, I mean, it's a real hinge point of history, no? I guess so, but I mean, only when you look at it uh, with a thousand years of retrospect. Which we're because, doing, which know, we're doing now. Uh, which we're doing, but, it, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, it took a long while, I mean, centuries before the influence of orthodoxy spread down to the ordinary people. I mean, you know, pagan beliefs remain deeply rooted in, in Russia into the modern period, in fact. But I mean, uh, the church had a much more difficult task in properly imposing its rituals and beliefs on the Russian country population compared with its struggles to do so in Europe, for example. So one shouldn't assume that, that there was an immediate impact or even a, you know, a medium-term impact on Russia's outlook on the world that could have been different with a different theology um, or a different set of alignments because of religious um, affiliation. But I think that once it was seated in Russia, yeah, I think orthodoxy and this messianic idea that we started our conversation with and this idea that Russia really was a holy land, that Christ was going to return not anywhere else but to Russia, that the, the, the prince who falls in battle defending the Russian land is automatically canonized. And yeah, that's, that's very much something that becomes then quite deep-seated in the Russian psyche, I would say. And I'm sort of borrowing here from ideas of people like Nicholas Berdyaev, who, who wrote about this sort of uh, psyche in the early 20th century. But um, he would, for example you know, root it all the way through the tradition of the fierceness with which the Russians defend their own native land. And indeed, you know, the, the, the belief in Russia as the source of utopia. It has a revolutionary utopian potential in Russia, precisely because people believe in it as the, the place of the future deliverance from all injustice. The place where, you know, one day the peasants will wake up and the, the fields will all be green and the cows will all be full of milk. And the person who will give it to them will be the holy tsar. 
or Stalin, as they were then eventually forced to settle for. And um, believe me, there were no green fields or cows full of milk under Stalin. So this belief in Russia as a source of utopia, deliverance, a providential mission, all of these um, sit quite easily with the orthodox faith in a way that then shapes Russian history in a way that, yeah, they certainly you can't imagine Protestantism in Russia in this sort of mm. cultural no. sort of pre-existing belief systems. You talk about how within Ukraine, there's a sort of blurry line where the Mongols had a tight hold on power, and then an area to the West where the Mongol presence was more fleeting. And you make the point that there's actually an important cultural political difference that lingers there to this day. Could you talk about yeah. a little bit about that? That's within yeah, Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when the Mongols came in under Genghis Khan's warriors in the 13th century, they they got to Kiev, they ransacked Kiev in 1240, that was the end of Kievan Rus, and they were moving into uh, West Ukraine and were thinking of settling on the Hungarian plain over winter to feed their horses, but then they returned because of, of a death in the family and the dynasty had to be reconfigured. They never really um, returned to occupy and hold to ransom West Ukraine in the way that they did the central and eastern parts of Ukraine. And increasingly from the 13th century, those parts of Kievan Rus, the old principalities, which had been independent, fell under the protection, if you like, of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So that diverted, if you like, Western Ukraine onto a completely different historical path compared with what Muscovy and the other principalities of Vladimir, Tula and all the rest that were then part of Kievan Rus, which fell under the sway of the Mongols. So I think under the Mongols, there was a, a much stronger patrimonial element. There was a much stronger element of rule by terror and coercion. Uh, from afar, but then, you know, these raids on towns to collect taxes when necessary. And there was a good deal more of, you know, delegating power to corrupt warlords uh, or princes like the Moscow princes who really effectively collected taxes for, for the Mongol Empire. That sort of meant there was a bifurcation or divide, if you like, in the historical development but between West Ukraine, much more European-oriented, and not just in its geopolitical alliances, but in its way of life. And Muscovy, as it would emerge from uh, the Mongol yoke, as they call it, in the 15th, 16th century, which brought with it many of the political traditions of the Mongol Empire. So, you know, the, the absolute autocracy of, of the Tsar, the patrimonialism, the fact that the servitors of the Khan, like the Tsar, were effectively slaves. All of that led to this idea of Tsarist power as it emerged from Muscovy as essentially Asiatic. So in the 19th century, Russia's European democratic identity was based on the idea that the autocracy, Tsarism, was really an Asiatic inheritance that they needed to either sweep away through a Jacobin revolution or make into a constitutional monarchy. I guess there are lots of people today who would see Putin as a sort of inheritance of Russia's Asiatic traditions rather than the best of its European traditions. We'll get back to the Quillette podcast in just a moment. But first, a quick message for our Australian listeners. On September 29th, 
we'll be hosting a Quillette Social in Melbourne. Previous Quillette Socials have been held in Toronto, London, Sydney, and New Orleans. And now it's Melbourne's turn. For more information and to reserve your ticket, visit the Quillette website and click on the Quillette Social link. And now back to the Quillette podcast. Well before communism, certainly in the 19th century, you have what are essentially proto-communistic ideas. You know, you had this guy, I'm going to butcher his name, General Arakcheyev. Arakcheyev, yeah. He would put in, this is under the czars, he would put entire villages in uniform and order them around, you know, much as Lenin and Stalin would do, you know, millions of people would go off to build dams and stuff like that. When communism came around, it almost feels like, by the time you get to that point in the book, that it's a kind of Russian peasant collectivist adaptation. You know, Marxism was this very, like, Germanic philosophy. It already kind of existed in Russia under this sort of cult of collectivization. The line I loved here was, it was not Marxism that made Lenin a revolutionary, but Lenin who made a revolution out of Marxism. Running through your comments, though, there are two different strands or traditions, and I would delineate the, the state tradition, you know, the Arache of basically conscripting peasants and putting them in uniform to run farms, which runs from, you know, the sort of Mongol inheritance of of just treating people as slaves or um, the pharaonic tradition of building pyramids, if you like, which runs all the way through to the Gulag under the Soviet Union. I mean, it's essentially a slave system and which the state builds on ideologically through this patrimonialism, but also then borrows off the Slavophile nationalist ideas of sacrifice of the individual to the collective. But this more communistic idea has a different tradition, which is sui generis, which is independent of that state tradition, and which is intrinsically democratic and comes from the peasant commune itself. Now, because of the problem of little labor and a lot of land, many uh, Russian communities in the village level developed as communes in which they had something like the socialist theory of labor, that you should be rewarded for labor, not for ownership of any land, that there wasn't anybody who could own land because it belonged to God, but should be used by everyone to feed themselves and so on. All of these sort of egalitarian ideas were at the heart of the Russian peasant ideology, which could be summed up by an anti-state stance because its slogan was essentially land and freedom. We want freedom from the state. So these two ideas, you know, run in parallel against each other for much of their history. They cross over at times. They get used by the state. And come 1917, when you have you know, the major political party, the socialist revolutionaries representing this peasant tradition going by the, the, the slogan of land and freedom, but they lose out from the revolution. And the people who come out on top in the revolution are, are these Bolsheviks whose, whose inspiration, yes, comes as much from people like Tkachev, you mentioned, who wanted a sort of Jacobin dictatorship of the proletariat, as it does from Marx or indeed these peasant ideas of socialism themselves. So you're absolutely right that the Russian Revolution is very Russian, and um, its trajectory is determined to a very large degree by the Russian political culture in which it situates itself by force, um, from which it emerges in many ways. One last question. 
I think it's a, it's a subject that doesn't get a lot of attention, but you give it some attention here in your book. The expansion eastward of Russia, you have the amazing statistic that between 1500 and 1917, Russia expanded the territory it controlled at a rate of 1300 square kilometers per day. There's, there's one quote to the effect <laughs> that it's the history of a country that is colonizing itself. And in the process, the Russians came up against and defeated people who essentially, in modern parlance, we would call them indigenous people. Uh, there were people who were fighting the Russians' bows and arrows. And, and it's amazing how, how ignorant Russians were of this geography that was part of their landmass. I think it wasn't until the 19th century that the Russians confirmed that there was no land bridge to the, to the Americas. You know, it's, it's a sort of thing that you would assume that people knew about in the 16th century. I'm talking to you from Canada, where we talk endlessly about what Europeans did to Indigenous peoples. Similar conversations take place in Europe and in Australia, New Zealand. Is there any kind of reckoning that's taken place in Russia for the way it's treated Indigenous peoples in the eastern part of the Eurasian landmass? Because it's arguably geographically the biggest takeover of Indigenous land holdings in, in human history. No, you're absolutely right. And the terrain of much of Siberia would be very similar to the terrain of much of Canada. The sparsity of the population of, of the indigenous population would be much the same. And that explains the ease with which a sort of gunpowder army of Cossacks and then, the, you know, the state armies coming behind them would, would be able to conquer this. But they they did so... In slight, I mean, they did so in, in slightly different ways from the way, say, the Americans colonized the West. I mean, it, they, it wasn't the genocidal aspects of it were not so pronounced in the sense that they were interested in collecting tribute off the indigenous people. So they would take hostages. They would put them in prison camps and collect furs from the population or collect gold if they thought the population had ways of finding gold, but mostly furs in order to release those hostages, which sometimes they didn't do. So, I mean, it was all very brutal. But um, there weren't the same attempts to convert them, for example, to Christianity. I mean, I think it just probably wasn't feasible. There were in some areas, like the Komi area of the Urals. But generally speaking, the further east you go, the weaker was the influence of the church in the 19th century and its proselytizing mission. And the weaker was also the sort of pure extermination of, of indigenous tribes. But you're right um, to, to, to flag this. And it is something that has never really been properly questioned within Russia itself, partly because of this great Russian mythology, which is still very alive today, that, you know, Russia, as you say, grew into itself. This wasn't an exterminating empire like the European empires. This was an empire which basically assimilated the Siberian tribes into Russia. And under the Soviet Union, the idea was given that they were all, you know, in a one big happy family mm. called Russia. Um <laughs> And that, that exists still today, that mythology. And so it's never really been properly confronted by Russian historiography. It will, I think, in the West, for sure, become um, a question of growing significance as the agenda for historians becomes one of looking at Russia as an empire rather than looking at Ukraine through Russian eyes or looking at Siberia through Russian eyes. Well, historians will now probably spend a lot more time looking at Russia through, uh, you know, Buryat eyes mm. or 
Hooven eyes or or Muslim eyes. And likewise, you know, Ukraine already has a burgeoning historiography, has had one for over 100 years, in which they've looked at Ukraine and Russia through Ukrainian eyes. So, you know, there will be a, a decolonization, if you want to call it that, of Russian history, certainly a decentralization of Russian history in which these different perspectives will come more and more to the fore. But at the moment, I'd say that within Russia, certainly it's it's a bit of a taboo subject because of this mythology that they aren't like other empires. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine Putin leading a campaign to decolonize history. <laughs> right. Orlando Fages is a professor of history at Birkbeck, University of London. His most recent book, among many, is The Story of Russia. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 